HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. My name is Sarah Kim, and I'm from Austin, Texas. I'm a Cheeselandian because while life is great, cheese makes it better. Go to Cheeselandia.com to learn more, and if it's for you, sign up. Well, hello. Welcome to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer, and it is Wednesday, January 13th, 2021. Happy New Year. This is the 275th episode of this series, which is dedicated to behind-the-scenes talent in the hospitality industry. Today, my guest is an outstanding VP of Food and Beverage for a hotel group with unique, award-winning properties, and I will introduce him fully in a moment. First, as I do on every show, I will start out with my PR tip, and then later we will have my speed round game, industry news discussion, solo dining experience, and the final question. As the founder of Bayer Public Relations, I'm going to tip the show off with my PR tip of the week. So today's tip is to master technique. No matter what craft we're talking about, how we do a particular task is key. From cooking to bartending and beyond, In order to create excellent results, we need to first excel at the process. And it's important that we learn the right way to do things from the get-go so we don't have to relearn any bad practices. So let's master the method, as technique is everything. That's my tip today. Now I'm excited for my first show of 2021. My guest is Leo Robichek. He is the vice president of food and beverage at Seidel Group. Working alongside Seidel since 2010 as Nomad's managing partner of F&B and bar director at Make It Nice, Leo has been responsible for developing and leading the cocktail programs and teams at at all Nomad properties. He and his team have been the recipients of numerous Tales of the Cocktail Spirited Awards, the James Beard Award for Outstanding Bar Program, as well as Best Bar in North America and number four in the world on the list of 50 best bars in 2018. Leo is also the author of the Nomad Cocktail Book. Welcome to the show. That's the shorter bio too. (laughs) Uh Well, thank you for having me. 
Yeah, well, thanks for joining me. Um, I I believe you're, are you in London now? No, actually, I'm back in New York, uh, back at my home, thankfully. Um, sadly, as we know, in this moment in time, London is going through a really difficult time. Um, so they are in, I believe, stage five of closure, which means there's no hotels, food and beverage. Um, or stores or gyms or anything open. They're sort of where we were and where they were at back in April. Oh, wow. Um, but they are, yeah. So we were supposed to open the Nomad London, which is a really exciting property back in December 1st, but they went into closure back in November. And um, now we're just sort of waiting for it to be safe again and for the, hopefully for the vaccines over there, since they're doing such an amazing job at uh, distributing vaccines for everyone. Um, hopefully when that takes hold, There'll, there'll be a, a brighter light at the end of this tunnel and we can get back to some sort of sense of normalcy and then open Nomad London. Yeah, wow. Yeah, well, and I was thinking you were doing the show with me at, I guess, 10 o'clock or... <laughs> um, no. Big, big commitment. It's 4 p.m. Yeah, it's 4 p.m. I'm in New York too. So, well, well I'm glad you're back here because uh, it's yeah, good to have too. you around. And let's, let's go back a little bit to your background, because in reading a longer bio of yours, I I see this whole history of Miami and that you grew up in Miami, went to University of Miami, and I'm from Miami, yeah. and I'm wondering why we we didn't. I don't think we ever talked about that. <laughs> so when were you down in Miami? When did you move there? Yeah, I moved to Miami around '86. I was born in Caracas, Venezuela. And um, yeah, at five years old, I sort of had enough and decided to move. No, uh, I'm kidding. My, my <laughs> parents, um, my dad went to school in the States and I think he was always very enamored by the States. So we moved to Miami and I was there until I was about 21. So I was there until like 2001, 2002-ish. Um, and then I moved straight to New York. Wow. I mean, I'm a little older, so I I don't think we, we would have crossed paths back then, but I went to Palmetto High School. I mean, I'm when I saw University of Miami, ah. I'm like, I'm we're we're yeah. we need to we need to talk about Miami sometime, but maybe I know, I know a lot of people <laughs> from Palmetto. I actually live between both Broward and Miami. My family moved around a lot, as I feel like a lot of people in the eighties and nineties in Miami did. You know, the property values were just going crazy. So Yeah. We I lived everywhere from Aventura to Hollandale to Coconut Grove to Coral Gables to Brickell to South Beach. And then in Broward, I lived in Pembroke Pines and Cooper City. But I went to Hillel for a little bit, and then I went to a high school in Broward in, in Flanagan. Wow, small world. So, so what it is. In, yeah, so what inspired you to move up to New York? Uh, and then you, and what was your first job up here? or where did you yeah. gain all this uh, fabulous bartending experience? <laughs> well, I actually started bartending or working in hospitality in Miami. Okay. Um, when I was going through college. So I never thought I would do it as a career. Um, I came to New York for the first time when I was seven with my mom. And I remember we stayed at the Grand Hyatt, which was in, or still is, it's in, um, in Grand Central. And I just remember walking out and feeling the life in the city uh, in the late 80s and being like, oh, my God, this is the most incredible place ever. And I actually remember as a kid looking at my mom and telling her, I'm going to move here one day. And she was like, yeah, no, you're not. 
Uh, you know, it was a very different New York back then, but I was just so taken aback and I had never felt or seen anything like it. And um, I started working in hospitality while I was in college. I started in a place in Dania called Isla Mirada Fish Company as a host and became a server. I worked at Dave & Buster's for a small stint. And then my first job bartending, I took my little fake ID to, I shouldn't say that, but I did. Um, to, <laughs> I'm, uh, <laughs> all good. <laughs> yeah, I was 17 and I took it down to Monty's in South Beach on, uh, you know, over there in Alton. Like, and um, I got a job as a server. And then one day a bartender didn't show up and they're like, who's bartended before? And I like raised my hand, even though never bartending in my life. And I worked up there, but I worked upstairs in like the fine dining part, which no longer exists, which was probably better for me because we didn't have as many bar guests as like the rocking downstairs that was by the pool. Uh, but I remember after my first shift, there was a gentleman named Andy who looked at me and was like, you've never done this. And I was like, I haven't. And he gave me a bar book and um, it was actually um, the Playboy bar book. And I just started reading through it and trying to figure out what I can do. Um, and then from there, I worked at Crowbar and at Space uh, as a bartender, and I was a really, really shitty club bartender. You know, people would ask for a drink, and I'd just sort of ask what color it was, and that's what I would do. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Um, But yeah, I moved to New York to work in finance originally, and, you know, that's when I had what I call my quarter-life crisis. I decided I wanted to go back to school to be a doctor. And uh, one of my coworkers at the time was an investor in a restaurant called Sushi Samba on 7th Avenue South. And that was my first foray in hospitality in New York. And I remember walking in and being humbled real quickly. Um, I remember the interview, which was sort of semantics. And he's like, hey, can you name like six grape varietals? And I thought I knew about wine. And I sort of failed miserably, and uh, but he gave me a job anyways, and I started serving there and then bartending on brunches. Wow, uh, I'm, but I'm familiar ge- because actually when I started doing PR, I worked at KB Network News, and that was one of our yeah. accounts. <laughs> oh, amazing. So I remember it. I wasn't working on it, but I remember the opening and um, what a restaurant had an amazing run. Oh my God, it was incredible. I learned so much there and I met such so many incredible people. Um, but it was really Paul Tangway who was doing their beverage program at the time. I don't know if you know him. He's one of the half of Tipling Brothers. Yeah, I do, I do. Yeah, and they were actually doing some really amazing things back then. I mean, this was maybe 02 and mm-hmm. you know that's for the first time I was seeing like egg white in a cocktail and every single ingredient was fresh and juice fresh every day. Remember, we had this massive, like, mojito and capirinha station that just had, like, every fruit and every juice, like, guava, pineapple, you know, and so on. And um, he made us take these mandatory sake, beer, wine, and spirit classes every Tuesday. And I remember people would be so pissed off that they had to come in an hour early to take this class. And I was, like, secretly loving it. I was like, oh, my God, I can't wait to learn. And that's really what... Uh, incited me into the beverage program. Like I, I, I really fell in love with wine first and then, you know, sake and beer and cocktails. Um, but, you know, I, part of moving to New York, I had always read about the city since I was so enamored by it. And I just remember both in movies and books, I would read about all these amazing hotel bars. And what I would do is once a month, I would just get dressed up and go check them all out. So I remember going to the Algonquin and the Oak Room And I just remember being so crazily disappointed. Um, It just wasn't what I thought it would be. But my first real aha moment was, um, I think it was either 
it was pretty much Pegu Club and then the Carlisle right afterwards. And I just remember being like, wow, I can't believe that cocktails could taste so good and have so much dimension. And that's sort of what really sprung my cocktail interest. Wow. Uh, but then I think in 05, I was sort of sick of um, working in these trendy places, which were amazing and you made a lot of money. But, um, you know, I think it was very different back then in the state of work. It was really hard and you weren't treated very nicely. Um, and I just remember hearing about this guy, Danny Meyer, and how he had this uh, novel idea of enlightened hospitality where you get treated nicely. And I was like, oh, I want to do that. So um, I went and applied at Eleven Medicine Park and I got hired and I got hired to the bar team. And uh, that was really when, you know, I, I started getting a little bit of more knowledge and notoriety and press, um, which is pretty cool. Yeah, absolutely. So how did your role change over the years and then and the, your vision with the EMP's cocktail program, um, which you're, you know, you uh, you definitely got recognized for? <laughs> Yeah. Well, you know, it was when I started there, it was like a zero Michelin star, two New York Times star bistro. Mm -hmm. They had had the same cocktail menu for the last seven years that was actually made by uh, Eben Freeman. You know, they, they actually had a pretty amazing cocktails. They just were probably not executed in the way that they should have been. Um, I mean, Eben Freeman um, had made the cocktail program for them seven years prior. But at that point, you know, all the bartenders had been working there from the beginning and there was like no recipes or SOPs. And I just remember starting and nobody really knowing how to make those cocktails that were on the list. And um, I was lucky in that I was allowed to pretty much do whatever I want. So we would slow down towards the end of the night and I would just start making any of these classics from the Savoy uh, cocktail book that I had and just going through it and like getting really into it. Uh, and then, you know, a few months later, Will Gadera and Daniel Hoom got hired as the chef and GM. And I remember them talking to me and being like, hey, we want to make this one of the best bars in the world. And I sort of chuckled because the reality was none of these other bartenders cared at all. Uh, but I looked at their face and I could tell they were serious. And I was like, all right, great. This is awesome. And, um, you know, the only caveat is that we didn't have any money back then. Um, and we had this liquor room or wine room full of all of this obscure stuff. And I think at this point there had been maybe four different wine directors and each one sort of bought on interesting things that they were into. So we had a ton of sherry. I remember we had a ton of chartreuse. Uh, we had a ton of Calvados and like Armagnacs and Cognacs. And in 2005, you know, a lot of people weren't playing with that stuff. So I sort of fell into this by necessity. I started using like um, sherry and cocktails, which, you know, built my love for sherry and low BV cocktails. And then I started playing with, you know, Calvados and Cognac and, you know, playing with split bases just because I had to deplete the stuff before I would move on. Um, I remember my first list actually had um, a last word and our only chartreuse we had was VEP. We were selling like a VEP last word. Um, for $12, which, you know, obviously I didn't know anything about costing back then. But, um, yeah, I was sort of lucky that nobody really paid attention to us then. So I was able to make a whole bunch of mistakes and do whatever I wanted without anyone noticing. Um, but I never really had a mentor in the bar world. So I, everything was trial and error. And I think that in a way gave me a little bit of insecurities where I questioned every single thing I did. And I would always ask why, and I would always ask, can I do this better? 
And that's how I sort of started building my own uh, palette and way of making cocktails. But I was also really lucky that the kitchen was young and they were super into it too. So I could always play, play off the kitchen, especially our pastry department with whatever I wanted to do. So I wasn't as familiar with the kitchen back then or using these fancy you know, items that they had. So I remember we started exploring first with making a grenadine and then like a ginger beer and it just grew from there. Yeah, no, that's cool um, that you had that, I guess, opportunity. And and also it's interesting that you were relying on the products that you had <laughs> available <laughs> to create uh, your your cocktail program and initially. So when, so then, I mean, EMP, uh, everyone I think listening to the show probably knows went on, you know, to become a, a four-star restaurant and 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 then the group expanded so your role expanded with with the nomad and how I mean how did it um change with because all these I would say a lot of added responsibilities yeah you know it all sort of happened slowly I became head bartender and then I became like a pseudo bar manager and then I remember Will came up to me and said hey you know we want to do this project um, that I can't really talk about, but like, what is your deal? Like, are you going to go to med school? And at this point I was finishing my post back. I sort of took longer to do it than I should have. And I was like, yeah, I think I'm going to be a doctor. He's like, no, but what do you really want to do when you grow up? And I'm like, no, I'm going to go to med school. And he's like, no, 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 but let's pretend that didn't happen. And, you know, I, as I told you before, I was always enamored by these amazing hotels of the past. And I was like, well, I'd always thought it'd be cool to do a hotel bar. And two days later, he took me in a walk to where Nomad is, um, and which is on 28th and Broadway, just a few blocks up from where 11 Madison Park is. And he was like, hey, this is going to be our hotel. If you're into it, do you want to help design it? We know nothing about the bar. And um, that's when I first was introduced into Sedell. Um, and I remember sitting in a room with all these developers, you know, who had just done the ACE and... I remember being so lost and so confused and not knowing what to do and walking out of there being like, okay, I need to like brush up on stuff. And, and, uh, but at the same time, they were so interested in what we had to say. And I got to create, you know, from scratch, my first dream bar, which was pretty awesome. So that's when I, um, became bar manager and, or bar direct. Well, I guess I would have been bar manager for the company. And, um, I deferred a year or sorry, I had a gap year between uh post back in med school so I, you know, worked on with the Nomad Project and then I deferred a year to see it open and, you know, I never sort of went back. Um, yeah, and I didn't realize you were still pursuing that at that point in your career. I was I was guessing yeah. from Sushi Samba days that you just were like, I'm going in another direction, but yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, I, you know, I, I said I was going to go back to school, but it took me a few years to actually do that. And then when I got into it, it was really when I got to EMP. And then um, I thought I was going to do that. And, you know, calling my Jewish Venezuelan mother and telling her that I wasn't going to be a doctor, that was pretty heartbreaking for her. But I think she's sort of proud now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> took yeah. a few years. <laughs> Yeah, I, I hear you on that. And yes, you have proved yourself for sure. Uh, so so Seidel Group then, I guess, jumping ahead a little bit, uh, there was a transition, what, uh, last year or, or with... Um, January of 2020. Yeah, with, with Seidel taking over and you, I guess, changing or, or 
the change with with Make It Nice and you taking over or becoming a VP of Food and Beverage. I mean, what? How did how did your role change with that and your adjust with working directly with the with the group? Yeah. Well, you know, so I was. I was uh, with Will and Daniel since the beginning and Make It Nice from the beginning of its inception. And even though I was the bar director, I, you know, would be in every development meeting. And the one thing I did learn really well from both Sidel and from Make It Nice is they really believed that everyone had a voice. So, like I said, the first time I walked into this meeting, I was just a bartender and they were listening to me on how to develop a program or a hotel. And that was pretty awesome. And then uh, throughout the years, I would be in all these meetings coming up with what the concept of Nomad was. And um, as we continued to grow and we started building LA and then Vegas, um, my sort of job grew as well. So I was both bar director, but I was also a managing partner of food and beverage. And I would get to work alongside Jeff Tascarella, who was my other counterpart uh, in sort of creating what the experiences were going to be for the guests, but uh, and what the designs of the spaces were going to be and so on. Um, so when Daniel and Will split in the end of 2019, you know, it was really hard. Um, two people that I'd worked with for at that point, maybe 12, 13 years, you know, decided that they were no longer going to work together because they, you know, honestly just didn't really get along anymore. didn't have the same vision. And, um, we were on this amazing ride where I thought that we were going to be on you know, unstoppable. And I really loved working with them. But when they split and Daniel um, sort of decided to keep the company, things shifted a bit. And he, um, no, I just don't know if he loved Nomad in the way that I did. And I, at that point, I had given them 14 or 15 years. And I had team members that had given me 10 years. And, you know, at this point we had Nomad New York, Nomad Vegas and Nomad LA, and we're working in Nomad London. And, I couldn't see all of these incredible people that had given me their heart and soul in the way that I gave Will and Daniel my heart and soul. I couldn't see them like being left by the wayside or not having a nomad anymore. So -hmm. when Daniel decided he no longer wanted to be part of nomad, I had to make a hard decision and I had to stick to what I believed in and what I loved. And I felt like I wasn't fully done at nomad, especially with London opening, but I also, you know, needed to give back to my team in the way that they gave to me. Um, so I reached out to Sadell and said, Hey, what would happen if, you know, maybe I wouldn't be with Make It Nice anymore. And they were like, Oh my God, we would love to have you. And, um, that's when we started talking after I talked to Daniel about, you know, possibly not being with the company anymore because he may no longer be part of Nomad. I started talking to Sadell and they offered me a vice president of food and beverage role. Uh, overseeing obviously all the nomads, but then any projects that they would be doing that they would do food and beverage for, um, which was exciting because I got to not only work on you know these two amazing brands that I was working on before, or and now only the one nomad, I got to work on these other brands that they created that were so unique and diverse and different. So it allowed me to change, in a way, the the things that I was presenting and the programs that I was putting together to fit within the molds of these spaces. Uh, obviously the, the pandemic put a wrench in things and a lot of our properties are currently closed. Um, so, but I'm excited for when it's all over, we sort of see the light of the tunnel and when, you know, we can, or when I can put my mark on those programs in the future. Yeah. So how, I mean, 
since the pandemic and your properties are are all around uh, the country and over in London, like how have you, how has the group shifted or pivoted and like, what are you working on now to try to keep up with uh, and not knowing exactly when, <laughs> when things are going to open and um, it's, I know it's such a difficult time. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it truly is like, you know, I think pivot was a word of 2020 and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, hopefully a hope and community is a word of 2021, but I think we do what we can, right? We take every little win as a win and celebrate it. Um, and it's, you know, it's become a full-time job now, like reading up at all these different cities and seeing what the new restrictions are or what has changed and, you know, being able to, to pivot, I guess, and, and, um, and do what you can in order to keep the business afloat. You know, the good part about working in a hotel is that you normally, or, or successful hotels, is that there's been a bit of capital that you've had before, so you can sort of work off of that. The bad part about working in hotels is that they cost so much more money to run from your fixed costs initially than like a mom and pop restaurant does. So the difference of like a Dante, they can get like a small infusion of money and, you know, they're able to, um, to, to stay afloat a little bit longer, but like a nomad, uh, you know, it's a few hundred grand a month in order to keep one of those places running. So things, things are, things, things sort of suck, but we do see that light at the end of the tunnel. And I think for us, you know, opening these spaces is mostly just to ensure that our team, uh, has a place to, have purpose and work and obviously only if they want to. Um, but just to make sure that people are making some money, that people still have insurance. Um, and then obviously to keep the brand name alive and to hopefully when this is all out of it, to continue building a business. Um, you know, we have two properties in LA and sadly LA is not doing great right now. Um, you know, we have two properties in London and sadly that's closed right now. Uh, we do have a property in DC and, you know, that's partially open, but we know what's happening in DC right now. Yeah. So we're lucky that in New York, we have this amazing rooftop that um, normally is for events, but we're able to use that as outdoor dining. And what we were able to do there, I'm really proud of because it is one of the most beautiful places in New York with one of the most incredible views in the Empire State Building. Um, and we're you know, we invested quite a bit of money in order to make sure that people feel both safe and protected, but also that people feel warm just because, you know, this winter is, uh, it's not been horrible, but it's still pretty cold out there. Yeah. I, I had lunch up in the rooftop when it wasn't, it wasn't quite as cold, but it was, it was awesome. And I had never been to an event up there. So I was really excited to have the opportunity um, to be in the space. And it was such a, it was such a lovely experience. And I love, I mean, I, I'm a big fan of the Nomad and all the Seidel Group properties. I actually was doing the PR for Eric Bruner Yang and Spike Jardie in DC for, for a while. Um, and I am very fortunate that I got to stay at the hotel numerous times. So I'm very familiar with the Line DC hotel and, um, and it's such a great venue and I mean everything about it. And I, I'm following along now to see what is happening with them in DC. I know it is, it's like another, another, uh, 
it's been a challenging time and now it's, uh, you know, an added, added uh, difficulty for them. So, yeah, I mean, it's, that is, it's one of my favorite properties. That, that property is, is pretty incredible. Mm-hmm. And um, that's one of the few places that I did get to work during the pandemic. Um, you know, I, we have a rooftop space there and I was able to like build a hotel lounge um, up there with, you know, basically rubbing two pennies together, which was pretty awesome just because I've been fortunate enough to really create amazing things with, you know, quite a bit of capital. So it was awesome to like, you know, get in there and actually start building things ourselves and, you know, doing landscaping ourselves. Uh, it was nice to sort of be, you know, to sort of do both ends of it. But yeah, look, it's 2021 and I'm trying to have the most positive outlook. And I know that it's a little bit harder in the beginning of this time than it has been in the past. Uh, but I sort of feel like it's, I don't know, I'm not a runner, but I think the saying is it's like mile 26 or 25 and you know it's the hardest hardest few miles but the end is in sight mm-hmm. um and then i really do think this industry is going to bounce back uh in an incredible way um i think that there's a lot of changes that we've realized that we need within this industry i think we realize this industry is a little bit more fragile than we had thought in the past um but i think what was important to us in january of 2020 what's important to us now is drastically different and i think that's all positive so I'm excited for this new renaissance. I'm excited for these new changes and I'm excited for a better, um, you know, food and beverage world. Yeah. And I, I, I agree with you. There is light at the end of the tunnel. We're near the end of this marathon, I hope. Uh, so, so yeah, we'll see what the future brings. Let me ask you my question for my last guest before we take a break. So on episode 274, I had on Elizabeth Tilton. She's the founder and CEO of Oyster Sunday, which is a corporate office for independent restaurants and food brands whose mission is to build a sustainable and supportive infrastructure for the food and beverage industry. So Elizabeth wants to know, um, everyone is saying that hotel buffets are dead. So what's next? And she asked, how does the Seidel Group create an ambiance when travel is light and people want less mystique? She also noted that she's um, a big fan and uh, that you do, uh, Seidel does public space really well with collision and unique service. Well, thank you, uh, Elizabeth. That's very kind of you. Um, Yeah, you know, the day of the hotel buffet and the way that it was before is probably dead for a bit. Um, But there are ways to pivot around it. You just need to have staff uh, serving and refreshing um, all of these products. Um, But also, I think for a bit, and people are going to want a little bit more space. And, you know, it's just about pivoting and, and having a wide array of selection for people to like really get what they want and what they need. Um, it is, you know, easier said than done um, because we're all working with a lot less staff. Um, you know, how do we create an ambiance when travel is light? Well, I mean, that part is hard too. I think it's about like really focusing on specific spaces, making sure that those spaces feel very safe, very well kept and very hospitable. Um, I think it's about making sure that a guest never has to worry about if these spaces are safe. And it's about like not, to me, not hitting anyone over the head about everything that you're doing. It's about making sure that information is available, but also whenever people come in, just taking them away from what the 
what the world is. You know, I think people want to reprieve from all of this. And that's part of why we go to hospitality. I think if anything, this pandemic has taught me or really shown me uh, the nobility in what we do. We're not like brain surgeons, but and we're not saving lives, but we're creating memories and we're creating experiences and we're allowing people to create bonds. And I think all of us have realized that that is so necessary in, you know, in our lives. Um, so it, it really is about making sure that people feel comfortable, that people feel taken care of. And that starts with your team. If your team feels safe, if your team feels supported, then they're going to make guests feel supported. Uh, and, you know, it, it's sort of a trickle down effect from there. Yeah, well said. And I agree. So let's take a little break here and we'll come back. We'll play my speed round game. We'll talk industry news. We'll have my solo dining experience in the final question. So stay with us. This is Only Industry on Heritage Radio Network. My name is Sarah Kim and I'm from Austin, Texas. I'm a Cheeselandian because while life is great, cheese makes it better. Wisconsin cheese has proven time and time again to be a delicious expression of craft, hard work, and tradition. As a Cheeselandian, I am able to share a Gouda experience with fellow cheese and food lovers nationwide, as well as connect with cheese producers and cheesemongers, taking my love of cheese to another level. I invite you to join Cheeselandia because during these difficult times, it has been even more important to take it easy and get cheesy. The Cheeselandia community and events have been the glue helping to keep us together and connected, and I would love it if you would join me. And let's face it, if you hear the word cheese and get a little hungry, then you've found a place you can call home. To find out more about Cheeselandia, go to Cheeselandia.com. Welcome back to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer, and my guest today is Leo Robichek. He is the Vice President of Food and Beverage at the Seidel Group. So, Leo, it's time for my speed round game. What this is is I name a couple things, and you get to pick your preference, such as chocolate or vanilla. Okay. Ready? All right. Yeah. Here we go. Eat in or eat out? Eat out. Wine, beer, cocktail, soft cocktail, or champagne? All of it. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> Depending on time and place and what's closest and ambiance. Uh, yeah, cool. Uh, tasting menu or a la carte? Ooh, that's hard. Uh, I would say a la carte, but depending on where I go. How about small plates or large plates? Small plates. The more food I could try, the better. Good reason. Communal table or chef's counter? Chef's counter. Uh, seeing the magic of what they do is pretty incredible. Mm-hmm. I agree. Tipping or all-inclusive charge? Oh, that's a hard one. Um, I would say tipping still. I know that there's so much around it mm-hmm. um you know in a utopia all-inclusive would be incredible but there needs to be a lot of changes both in the way that the fab world works currently in the united states 
but also mindsets. Um, and I say tipping because, you know, just I haven't seen many all-inclusive that, that work. Yeah, true. Okay, Lady Gaga Enigma or Jazz and Piano? Ah. Uh, ah. <laughs> uh. I'm a Gaga fan, true and true, from the beginning, so I would say Enigma, but Jazz and Piano was one of the most incredible shows I've ever seen. I was lucky enough to see both of them a few times. Yeah. Well, do you remember I, I, I ran into you in Vegas? Yeah. And That's where I, we had the discussion about doing this. I know. <laughs> I know. And um, I saw Enigma, and I remember you telling me what you just said now. Um, so oh. um, I, I'm so yeah. glad I, I will say out there. If you were a Gaga fan from like day one, do Enigma. If you were a Gaga fan from, um, I would say, A Star is Born, then do the jazz and piano. Yeah. Okay. Good advice. And my stay at the Nomad was fabulous. I, I mean that. Oh, good. Yeah. It was so it was so special that the hotel, the venue, your restaurant, oh. bar. Yeah. And the, running into you was, was such a treat. So. Um, oh, thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Okay, I have three more. Uh, dancing or singing? Perfect. Dancing. I'm the worst singer in the world, and I love dancing. <laughs> cheese plate or dessert? Oh, cheese plate. But I love dessert, too. <laughs> <laughs> both. Manhattan, <laughs> both. Okay. Manhattan, Brooklyn. Manhattan. Or I'll just, yeah, I was going to go on. Manhattan. You said Manhattan? Yeah, Brooklyn is incredible. There's a lot of incredible places, but I've been lucky enough to live in Manhattan for the last 18 years, and I love the city. Yeah, me too. Awesome. That was the game. Okay, that was a fun so, game. Thank you. I, I like playing it. It's always different with every guest, so uh, it's it's uh, it's a uh, speed round that sometimes doesn't go so fast, but we, we did that. That was good. Good. Good to get some feedback on on the, um, the questions. Okay, so for industry news, I picked out an article that was actually, uh, it was a couple of weeks ago in the New York Times, but I thought it was relevant to discuss with you. And it was entitled, Want a Nice Dinner Out? Your Hotel Room Awaits. Restaurateurs and hoteliers are teaming up to create private dining experiences that allow guests to get out of the house but limit their exposure to others. This is by Karen Schwartz. So this this was talking about you know partnership happening partnerships happening between restaurants and hotels. Uh, one in particular that they uh, highlighted was Walnut Street Cafe and AKA Cafe University Hotel in Philadelphia um, collaborated. They created Walnut Sweet Cafe, which I think is really cute, and basically. It's not typical room service, but some guests can get a hotel room for a couple of hours and enjoy a private prefix meal, and then they have the option to spend the night, but they don't have to. Uh, so they're using using hotel rooms in a different way, and I think it's uh, smart during these times to to be able to um, come together and uh, provide this for people. Uh, what's your What's your take? Yeah, look, I love it. We actually started doing it at the Nomad as well, um, sadly, before indoor dining closed, so we can't do it right now. Um, but for me, this is my favorite part of the pandemic, uh, if Nomad. I can say that, is just the, 
Nomad New York. Oh, that's what I thought. Okay. Yeah. Um, for me, it's like the, the, one of the good parts of the pandemic is that it's, you know, allowed everyone to express their creativity and again, use that word pivot, um, but also to be like more invested in community. Like I love, love, love the food and beverage industry because I don't think there's many communities that has a stronger bond. And, you know, I, it's a really altruistic community. People are very sharing and people really help each other out. So when I see like hotels partner with local restaurants that don't have a means to serve people, I think that's incredible. Also, the sad part is people aren't really staying in hotels right now because travel is very limited. So, you know, changing a room and creating another private dining room that feels safe for somebody is awesome. And that's a part of the creativity I love seeing. Uh, it's also a once in a lifetime experience because the reality is we're not going to be able to do that soon. Uh, hopefully hotels are back and occupancy is back um, and people are going to, you know, be able to eat indoors again at some point. Um, so it, I, I love seeing that pivot and I love seeing that, you know, sense of community and I love seeing the creativity. Um, you know, if anything, like I said, the, the best part of this pandemic is that there's been so much creativity and it's seeing, I just love walking around in seeing what people are doing, it, it, it's pretty awesome. Yeah, I agree. And you're right with once in a lifetime opportunities, it's like looking at the silver lining of, of this stuff. And um, I think it's cool. There was a, they said this restaurant uh, and hotel combo in Philly got inspired from La Crocodile at the White Hotel in Brooklyn. And they were doing uh, La Crocodile ups upstairs and they said they removed the beds and were hosting groups up to 10 people. So again, yeah, it's like a cool different experience that you could have that is probably not going to be around forever. <laughs> yeah. It's also fun because like in America, well, maybe not so much right now, but in America, you, a lot of people don't ever go to hotels within their own hometown. Um, and, mm -hmm. you know, in the UK, it's different because there's so much amazing food and beverage that exists within these hotels. And that's why I say not as much anymore, because you're seeing that in America now, too. But I remember 10 years ago, I would ask somebody in the street, what's your favorite hotel in New York? And, you know, people were like, I don't know. I've never really been inside of one. Um, and the availability of seeing like what the rooms are and what the service is like, I think it's pretty cool. And also we've all been cooped up for so long. Like why not have a staycation? Why not have a change of scenery? Why not have something transportative where you feel like you're being pampered again? Yeah, that's a good point. I'm not someone who typically does staycations. I, I figure if I'm going to stay at a hotel, it's or it's cause I'm traveling, but I know a lot of people here do it, especially in New York. And during this this time when you can you could treat yourself and because travel is is limited and and experience it and that's a good point also to know what's happening in your yeah. own city. <laughs> I mean the amount of precautions that we take and the amount of money that mm -hmm. is that that cost is is pretty substantial and I think people don't really realize that about the hotels that are trying to stay open right now um, and you know they don't use rooms. A specific time after service, they are using all of the the bombing and the fogging. Um, they're wiping down all surfaces. They are, you know, they're changing HVAC to ensure that it's okay. Like, all, like it's minimal touch point or a lot of touch points, but minimal minimal amount of interaction within the room for specific people. Like they, it's it's 
you're doing a lot in order to assure that it's safe and it's costing significantly more. So being able to support your local community that brings tourism or brings capital into the city it should be something that if people have the means that they should do. Um, I know people that didn't leave their house for yeah. six, seven, eight I months. I agree with all York. that. And, and um, um, that, you know, yeah. And people told me that some of these vacations were, were amazing. They were like, I just needed to see something different. Um, you know, and if you're around, we have amazing clawfoot bathtubs in, in New York City at the Nomad. If you want to take a really cool bath experience, come on in. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I might have to look into that. <laughs> yeah. Well, let us know. I, I would yeah, love to I'm be your first vacation. Okay. I'm, I'm, I'm going to look at, I'm serious because, uh, I, uh, I'm such a fan and actually my room in, uh, in Vegas, when I stayed at the hotel had this fabulous bathtub in like in the, in the middle of the room. Basically. <laughs> um, yeah. uh, it's, uh, I can only imagine, uh, what your setup here is in, um, New York. Yeah. It's a very similar setup. Those bathtubs are pretty amazing. Yeah. I'm not even a bathtub person, but I definitely use it every time we stay in the hotel. Yeah, I'm not I'm not either, but there's something I don't know, it's something about it and yeah, your the the design, the the ambiance that, that you guys create in your rooms and spaces is is really special and uh unique and yeah, it's a it's a great group to be to be working with, I would say. <laughs> So um, we will own just one little note about that article. Funny enough, they they were talking about a couple who stayed at this property and their last name's Bayer, but they don't have any relation to me. But I just thought that was interesting. I know. I saw that. I was like, uh-huh. <laughs> I was like, I don't know who this is, but it's I don't see my name that often. Um, you probably don't either. <laughs> no. So, okay. So. Speaking of travel and hotels, um, I actually am going to talk about my solo dining experience that I took a little trip, and this week it's at Arca. So here's the rundown. The location is in Tulum, Quintana Roo, Mexico. The concept is a micro-seasonal food with the focus on Yucatan ingredients featuring wood-fired cooking. The partner and chef, Jose Luis Hinostroza. So why did I go? Well, as I said, I took a little trip to Tulum um, in December. I was I was hesitant about traveling, but I took lots of safety precautions. I stayed at a place that was practicing uh, good COVID practices, and the whole trip um, turned out to be amazing and feel very safe. And this restaurant I went to, same with protocol, felt very safe. So I'm glad I went. Um, And I had been in Tulum a couple years ago and Arca was closed. And so it was always on my list of places I wanted to go to. So that's why I went. So my experience, um, they're typically an an all walk-in restaurant, but they were taking reservations at six o'clock. So I did that. A reservation for one at six. I showed up. They had my table ready. Um, it was. It's an all outside restaurant. I was seated at a table socially distanced from other tables. It was near the bar. Um, 
It was near the open fire kitchen, which is very cool. And I was warmly greeted uh, by my server. I had great service. All the staff was wearing masks. Uh, my The menu was uh, that you scanned on your phone. So I, I checked it out. I ordered. Uh, the food came out pretty promptly, and everything was delicious. So what did I get? I had seared prawns in chili butter with plantain vinaigrette, green grosella, and chili manzano salsa, and suckling pig roulade with chorizo sauce, chicharron, peanut crumble, fresh chayote salad, roasted garlic, and mint vinaigrette, and I had a bottle of sparkling water. So my take, prawns were divine. There were four of them. I ate them with my hands, which they recommend, and dipped it in the sauce on the plate, and it was really delicious. And then the suckling pig, or lechon, was also delicious. Uh, it had it was divided into little portions, and had the chicharron on top, so it was a nice presentation, um, and I enjoyed that. So the ambiance, it's a very pretty alfresco jungle-like setting, uh, lots of trees, simple woods, candlelight, lanterns, um, and it's very smoky because of the wood-fired cooking happening. Uh, I'd say this is perfect for alfresco dining dates. Interesting tidbit, the chef is formerly the chef de cuisine at Noma in Copenhagen, and he remained rooted in Tulum after the Noma Mexico pop-up they did several years ago, and he opened Arca in 2017. So personal fun fact, well, if you know me, I would do something like this. So Arca is located next to Heartwood, which is a very popular industry favorite restaurant, and I had been to Heartwood before, but I couldn't not go again since I was right there. So I did do a second dinner <laughs> and I did a, I walked in and I sat at the bar and that was also a lovely experience. And it's the same site of setup that it's all outdoors and um, felt very safe. So the cost was of the Arca meal was $57. That's US and not including, including gratuity. Would I go back? Yes. And their website is arcatulum.com. That's A-R-C-A. So there we go. Leo, have you been to, been to Tulum? I have. You've been to Arca? I actually got to go. To, I did. I got to go to both. I actually, I had such a great time there too. Yeah, I thought you were about to say you went to the um, the Nomad uh, pop-up. Did I mean the Noma pop-up. I did go to the Noma pop-up. Oh, okay. How was that? Yeah. Uh, it was incredible. Um you know, Renee's just an incredible human being. And, um, you know, it was definitely a once in a lifetime experience, but just how they took that time in between the renovation to, to go to cities, really learn about the local culture and cuisine and, um, only use purveyors that were local to support that community in that way was pretty awesome. Um, and it was great seeing that group, like working barefoot in the sand. Um, but it was, it was, it was really great. I can imagine. Yeah, I'm. I'm sorry I missed it, but it was. Uh, I'm sure it was super, super special. I'm lucky that I've been able to. I've been to Noma in Copenhagen, and so uh, got to experience that. But yeah, Tulum is a, is a special place, and this these restaurants uh, being outdoors and their wood fired cooking and everything they do is very unique. So um, recommend it all. Okay, so for the final question, uh, my next guest is Hilary Scheinbaum. She is a freelance 
journalist for food and beverage, lifestyle, celebrity, fashion, and more. And she recently released a new book called The Dry Challenge, How to Lose the Booze for Dry January, Sober October, and Any Other Alcohol-Free Month. Uh, so I thought it was interesting uh, to go back to back from her to you, um, or you to her. Uh, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, please, could you please ask a question for Hillary? Yeah, you know, I think maybe this is in the top of my mind because I, I was listening to uh, Brené Brown's uh, podcast today, which I love. But I think the biggest, the hardest thing for me whenever I try not to drink is essentially being shamed for it. And I'm sure she talks about it in the book and I probably should read it. Um, but how do you, you know, tell people politely that you're not drinking and not sort of not to shame you for it? Um, I think that's probably, especially in New York and especially people in the industry, like the, the, the biggest issue that we all encounter when we're trying not to drink is, you know, and I've been both a victim of it and I've also been the person shaming somebody else, so I should change my own habits. But, um, but yeah, I would love to know what the best way to handle that situation would be. Yeah, it's a great, it's a great question. And I, I don't drink. And so it's gonna, we'll talk all about this. And, and I love to get her feedback on it, because I find, um, I found over the years, it's mostly awkward experiences that happen, even though I'm comfortable telling people I don't drink. But um, it will be, I mean, she has a whole book about this. So uh, she really dove into it. And a lot of people don't drink for different reasons. So uh, we'll, we'll explore all of that. And I have to say, though, we didn't really, we didn't get a chance to talk about your book, the Nomad Cocktail Book. But I love that you have a whole chapter on soft cocktails. I mean, I, I really yeah. need to start making these at home. <laughs> yeah, I mean, hey, let's, the book is incredible. I definitely recommend you go and buy it. But you know, we I was very specific when I when I created it, and I wanted it to be very true to what we do. So I do recognize that a lot of the recipes are not as home user friendly. But I didn't want to like change anything or dumb anything down. Um, just because it just wouldn't be an accurate representation of what we do. So I wanted to give everyone that full experience. But there are some of the non alcoholic cocktails that are a little bit easier to produce. Um, and hey, maybe you never know, maybe I'll my next book will be about you know, simpler recipes at home bartending and home hacks. Like that would be cool. But yeah, non-alcoholic is super important. Like you said, there's so many reasons why people don't drink and um, people should be able to enjoy something delicious. that's just not, you know, a juice or a soda. Yeah. And you've, I have had some delicious non-alcoholic drinks or soft cocktails at the Nomad and, um, different properties that you are in charge of the beverage program. So you definitely, you definitely don't uh, skip on that, which sometimes bar programs do. And uh, I appreciate it. <laughs> I mean, to be honest, they're like the hardest ones to create because it does take the most amount of manipulation of raw ingredient. Um, thankfully the world is changing and there's a lot of new products that are coming to the market that are, you know, uh, non-alcoholic liquor substitutes that are fun to play with. But um but yeah, I don't know. I've always been that person that when I find something hard, I try to do that as much as possible so I can be better at it. Yeah, well, you definitely do that. And I, I'm so impressed with your whole career and that, you know, how you've transitioned uh, before this very difficult time and now throughing it. 
uh, and all the accolades and success you've had, I think it's very well deserved. And I just want to say congratulations and thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. And I'm sorry it took so long to find a date, but um, I'm really happy we did this and it was very fun. Um, so if ever you need me back on again, I'm really happy to do it. I love playing that game, the speed round. Awesome. I will let you know. <laughs> and um, yeah, I'm, I mean, we got, we got it. We got it in and uh, it's really great to talk with you and I hope to see you in New York and stay safe and everything. And yeah. I hope, can't wait to be back at your properties for my state. Oh, me too. <laughs> me too. I can't wait. Thank you so much. Uh, have a good Wednesday and hopefully Thanks. I do get to see you somewhere soon. All right. Take care. Thanks. My guest today has been Leo Robichek, the Vice President of Food and Beverage at the Seidel Group, formerly the Bar Director at The Nomad. Their website is seidelgroup.com, and you can follow Leo at lrobichek, that's L-R-O-B-I-T-S-C-H-E-K, and at Seidel Group, that's S-Y-D-E-L-L-G-R-O-U-P. You can follow me at Sherry Bayer, at Bayer PR, and at All Industry. My Facebook page is All in the Industry, websites BayerPublicRelations.com, SherryBayer.com, and AllInTheIndustry.com. All of our shows are archived at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. We are also on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify. And if you get a chance, please give us a rating and, re and review. We'd love that. Uh, it helps people find the show. Thanks to my engineer today, Amanda Wang, and thanks again to Leo. I'm Sherry Bayer. I'll be back next week with a new show. Hope you'll tune in then and stay safe and well, and thank you for being part of All in the Industry. Bye. All in the Industry is powered by Simplecast. I'm Sherry Bayer, and you're listening to Heritage Radio Network, a member-supported podcast network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. This year, HRN is celebrating 10 years of food radio. For the past decade, we've been taking you behind the scenes of farms, restaurants, breweries, school cafeterias, and more. It's been 10 years, and we're just getting started. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org.